welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comet Magazine, in which we explore deep religious and political difference. I'm Matthew Kamink, and with me is my friend and co-host, Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and, f- and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We're in the process of writing a book together, and this podcast represents an informal space where we can work out our ideas on deep difference and democracy. Over our time together, we will also put, pull together a group of expert voices on religion and politics to inform our discussion. I'll turn it over now to Shadi. I'm Shadi. Hi, everyone. So as Matt said, um, we are good friends, but perhaps we shouldn't be. Uh, Matt's Christian. I'm Muslim. Matt's conservative. I'm liberal. Or, yeah, I think I'm still liberal. Uh, Matt's <laughs> white. I'm brown-ish. Matt is a theologian, and I'm a political scientist by training, so, you know, they usually don't get along, so that's another complication. And just to kind of top it all off, Matt's from the rural Northwest, and I'm from the urban Northeast. So, you know, our identity markers are a little bit different. Um, We wouldn't be the most natural of friends, but we are friends, and we become good friends over the past few years. And I think it all started with Matt um, sending me a cold email. And then one thing led to another on Twitter and talking about these issues. And then finally we we met in person and we've been debating, talking and collaborating as a sort of Muslim Christian roadshow. And we want to bring some of that energy that, you know, we've talked to various Christian colleges across the country, and we've tried to present a model of navigating deep difference. And I should probably say, too, um, one thing we really want to do with this podcast, and this can be an, an initial provocation for Matt as I just get him going here, but one thing we do share is we don't like the whole kumbaya, we're all the same, we believe in the same things, and we don't believe that friendship is actually particularly well served by believing the same things. Friendship might be better served by acknowledging where we differ, including on fundamental issues. And that brings me to when Matt and I met in real life for the first time. Matt was launching his book, which is really good, by the way, It's called Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear. And it came out in in 2017, I believe. I can correct (laughs) me on that. But so the book came out and we did a little talk, a little panel here in D.C. And one of the other panelists said something that bothered me and I felt that I had to say something. And I felt that I had to stand up for Matt and his religion, even though it wasn't my own. So another Muslim panelist was trying to emphasize that we are basically the same, that we all, like we, Muslims and Christians, both love Jesus and respect him and honor him. And that's something that we share and that we believe in the same God. Um, I wanted, so I just kind of, you know, raised my hand and, jumped in and I said, well, actually, we differ pretty fundamentally on Jesus. Um, You know, as Christians, as a matter of creed, believe that Jesus is divine. 
that Jesus is the son of God. Muslims are very adamant that they don't believe this. They see Jesus as a great prophet, but a man. And, yeah, um, and, and I think, you know, Shadi, and I think with this exchange, what was, what was bugging us, well, initially she was frustrated because you and I were talking about our, our deep differences religiously and politically, and we found those differences to be fascinating. And my, my sense from her was she was frustrated by that. She wanted to talk about what united us and how we were so similar. And her, her solution, essentially, to these, these feelings of discomfort with, with difference were to say, that the differences don't really matter. That that really, what's most important is that that we're we're together, um, and that we both believe in Jesus and justice and and all of these sorts of things. And that you know, really, essentially, we are the same religion. We believe in the same God, and uh, we should grow out of these differences, essentially. And my my memory from this is, I you and I just barely even knew each other, and I leaned forward. To respond to her, and she, um, and you kind of just tapped me on the hand, and you were like, "No, Matt, I got this. I've got this." <laughs> and what actually you did is, you said to her, "No, so um, she she was a Muslim. She had a Muslim um, background." You said to her, uh, "No, you, you don't understand. This guy right here, Matt, he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Like he believes in like the resurrection." And that he saved him from her. Like you started to explain the Christian creed, <laughs> yeah, to her, and I was just able to sit back. Um, and and that was that was quite a moment. I think as our first night together, <laughs> you explained the Christian creed to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that was really cool. And because I have a deep respect for for the Christian, you you can respect something without believing in it yourself. And I think that's challenging sometimes for people. Um, and I don't necessarily, I wouldn't want Christians to dilute who they are. Similarly, I wouldn't want people to ask me or other Muslims to soft pedal Islamic creedal commitments. Uh, and that to me is like actually a better path at handling difference. But I think I think that a lot of Americans don't feel comfortable with difference. There's always this presumption that we should be searching for unity, that we should be finding consensus, and we see difference as a problem to be solved. But what if it's not a problem to be solved? What if it's not a problem at all? What if it's actually part of the solution? And I think... Yeah, and I, th I think that brings up the, the core question we're trying to tackle here, Shadi, and that comes from you know our, one of our favorite political philosophers, William Connolly, who talks about, you know, when, whenever we experience difference, um, our, our very bodies react to it. We, we tighten up, our shoulders get, get tight, our fists get tight, and we want to rush to the, the quickest solution to that experience of difference, um, whether it be racial difference or religious or political. Um, we look for the quickest path out of that level of discomfort. And so, um, and then we will often ask our politicians uh, to solve that difference for us. So we'll look to political power to alleviate us from that, that feeling of discomfort, um, rather than having sort of a posture of curiosity about that difference, that I don't need to solve that today, and I'm certainly not going to ask a politician to 
sort of solve that difference on my behalf. But then that question that sort of haunts and excites us is how do you navigate that difference well? And, uh, you know, you were just on, on MSNBC actually this morning being um, asked why you refuse to call um, Republicans fascists and why you think it's actually a bad idea to respond in that way. Um, that for the future of democracy, sort of demonizing people in that kind of a way um, is not particularly helpful. I wonder if you might share just a little bit more because, you know, we're on a podcast now, Shadi, so you have more than a 30-second soundbite to explore this before <laughs> someone interrupts you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, can you talk just a little bit about, uh, you know, give us a little bit of background on that conversation on Morning Joe and and sort of why you react to this um, sort of labeling of difference in that, in that way of fascism. Yeah. So yeah, the fascism debate continues and it'll probably intensify in this tense electoral season. My issue, and I guess this animates a lot of what I do. And I think this is something that we share, which is a kind of a worldview and, and let me try to lay that out a little bit for, for listeners. I see a real danger in what I call existential politics. And by that, I mean political competition that feels like it threatens our very sense of who we are, quite literally, our existence. And this isn't just an American thing. It's universal. We see it across the globe um, in countries as diverse as Italy, Sweden, um, India, Brazil, Israel, the Philippines. And of course, there was an experience with existential politics during the Arab Spring in the Middle East. And because, I've, because I was living in the Middle East uh, during this very tense period from 2011 to 2013, I got a firsthand experience with how scary that can be, where the fundamental divides are about culture, religion, identity, and those things are hard to compromise on because you how do you split the middle on your belief in God? You know, that's not there's not an obvious like middle ground there. So with all of that in mind, I think that we got we have two options when we confront people who we feel threatened by or we think they are bad people, bad in scare quotes. One thing we can do is tr to try to defeat them. Uh, I don't love that option because if we live in a democracy, coercion and using pressure through the federal government, you know, isn't ideal. That can be pretty aggressive. The other option is to come to terms with our reality that we're not going to be able to return to some consensus or sense of unity. So whenever I hear Americans talking about we need to find consensus. We need to find unity. How do they intend to do that? Because if we as Americans don't agree on foundational questions, including our belief in God or the lack thereof, that's not something that you can kind of paper over. That leads to really different starting premises and how we orient ourselves in, in politics, right? So just to fast forward to like the, how this relates to fascism— when we when we use words like fascism, we are for our opponents. First of all, then we're transforming our opponents into enemies because even if they themselves are not fascists, let's say they, they just support a fascist leader, i.e., 
how sometimes people refer to Donald Trump or maybe someone like him, then how then that's going to lead to what you just talked about, Matt, that when people are confronted with difference, they kind of um, the thing with the shoulders say that <laughs> say that again. Yeah. Like they kind yeah, of your shoulders get tight, right? You get into the a posture of yeah of domination of fighting, fight or flight. Yeah, yeah, fight or flight. So if we if we talk to fellow, you know, our fellow American who's a rep- member of the Republican Party, and I'm a Democrat, and we say, well, you might not be a fascist, but the person that you voted for last time around or the time before is a fascist. Is that going to be an entry point into a productive conversation, or will it push them to tighten up their shoulders and to feel that fight or flight response? And then, just the last thing I'll say, and Matt, you've been a big influence on me in this: the idea of presumptive generosity. When we face things that we don't like or people that we feel threatened by, I think that it's a all, each and every one of us as an American has a choice when we encounter that. We can either get angry or call them names or label them or say that they're beyond the pale, or we can be presumptively generous. And that means extending the benefit of the doubt without having any other context. So, oh, okay, Trump supporters, supports Trump, all these things, but still we find a way to assume not the worst of our fellow citizens, but the best. Now, they can prove us wrong, and they can be, like, pretty disappointing when you actually talk to them, but that's up to them to demonstrate. That shouldn't be what I go into in the conversation with someone who I don't really know. And Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and I mean, I, I feel like this, um, this, this practice of labeling— um, that we experience today actually has an, an analog to you know our ancient faiths of, of Christianity and Islam of labeling another you know a heathen or a pagan, but in the sense of um, basically otherizing a person to such a, an extent that they are subhuman uh, and are therefore um, are therefore worthy of of being pushed beyond the pale outside, uh, sort of disenfranchised for the good of all. Um, and it seems to me that in both Islam and Christianity, we have this understanding that human beings, uh, are, are, are made in the image of God and have a level of value, um, that does not go up and down based upon their belief. Um, and so human beings are always human beings and we are always connected to them. And so, the political desire to create uh, an enemy that is somehow uh, subhuman is something that, you know, we, we both react against. I mean, for me as a Christian, that human beings are loved, that they're made in the image of God, and that they have value, um, despite any political difference that I might have with them, um, they deserve my, my respect, of course, they, they also deserve that I'm going to contest them and disagree with them strongly. Um, but ontologically speaking, they have profound value, and I cannot dehumanize them um, with sorts of labels that would push them you know, outside of my political community. Yeah, and I'm glad that you bring this up because I think one thing that we want to do in this podcast series is explore how each of our respective faiths can actually be a constructive thing for American democracy. I mean, I live in, as you, as you suggest, uh, as we sort of alluded to earlier, 
in a northeastern liberal elite enclave, also known as Washington, D.C., where it is relatively difficult to find Republicans. I think the latest numbers are that like 7% of Washington, D.C. Are, are, are Republican, and they live on the other side of town from where I So I actually don't even really see them all that much. <laughs> so even though there aren't so many Republicans in D.C., they are part of our country. There are tens of millions of them, and specifically tens of millions of of Trump supporters. In this liberal elite enclave, we tend to think that religion exacerbates polarization, that it actually introduces passions that can't be accommodated or softened. And, you know, you hear this all the time. It's in the air that we breathe that, you know, we should have less religion in politics. God forbid we would actually have more of it. And I think we're quite different than that. In We realize that religion can be misused, but there are important precedents in our, in our faith, faiths that actually, I think, allow people to engage w- with each other more constructively. And some might say, well, oh, you know, Islam isn't known for helping democracy function better, but that's part of what we'll explore. And I don't know, Matt, if you agree with me, but evangelical Christianity is not seen as the greatest thing for American democracy either. But yeah, maybe we can no, just... No, I think, yeah. I think that's something to name right off the bat for our podcast, is that if you're looking for help with building a healthy democracy, typically in the modern academy or the modern media, right, you would not invite uh, a Muslim or an evangelical Christian onto your show to help you think about healthy democracies. Um, because of the way in which the history of religion and politics is told, it's essentially that, yeah, Islam and Christianity um, are anti-democratic, anti-rational, anti-modern, um, and uh, they they cultivate this sense of religious zealots, right? Zealots at the gate who would tear apart oh, yeah, that's uh, a rational democracy. So... So I think we have we have our work cut out for us, Shadi. I mean, what right does a Muslim and an evangelical Christian have to speak about uh, resources for democracy in an age of age of deep difference? Well, I think that we're actually on stronger footing than people might expect because I think it's fair to say that as America has become less religious and more secularized, and it's a pretty striking drop in religious affiliation and belief across the board. With all that. It's not as if polarization has decreased. It's not as if people are dealing with each other in a more uh, positive, loving way. No, I mean, ideological fragmentation has intensified. So clearly, the, the secular answer to this question hasn't got people to where they hoped they would be at this point. So it is time, I think, for a, a reassessment and a reckoning with the secular consensus, the idea that there is this final endpoint and that we just progress towards that. And it's always better to have less religion rather than more. So I think um, that's part of the case we want to lay out. Yeah, and I think I'd add to that that both Christianity and Islam are older than America, and uh, they are older than secularity. So uh, the Muslim tradition and the Christian tradition have been wrestling with questions of deep difference, questions of fear, 
questions of hatred, questions of intellectual humility uh, and generosity uh, for a lot longer than America has been wrestling with those questions. And so they are, in my mind, uh, deep reservoirs of wisdom um, for thinking about these kinds of things. And, um, and so that's something I'd love for us to pull out in future episodes is as we think about intellectual humility, right, that, that our two faiths have been wrestling with those questions for a long time. Yeah. And, and one thing that we'll definitely dive into this more in future episodes, but just as a little teaser for our listeners and viewers, one thing that Islam and Christianity both have and both have a lot of is the idea of delayed judgment. That final judgment does not come in the here and now. It comes afterwards, in the next life. And ultimately, God is the only one who can offer that definitive, decisive judgment. That's actually liberating. People think, well, oh, you know, um, that means that Christians believe Muslims will go to hell and vice versa. And how do we live with people who we think are damned, um, especially if the punishment is potentially eternal? But actually, there's another way of looking at it, that that belief in God and that and realizing that not everything is here, it allows you to chill. It allows you to relax. So if you get in this big argument with someone, they have terrible ideas about abortion, for example, you know, obviously a very contentious issue and one that Matt and I disagree on, but we'll save that for another episode, <laughs> that um, it's not the end of the world. Because well, yeah, it literally so I, isn't the end of the world, but yeah. So, I mean, I think can the, all of the discussions around cancel culture um, really do speak to this question of when is judgment to be brought down? Um, in that when someone is canceled, you have an immediate, swift swing of the axe in which judgment is brought down in the here and now. This person needs to be canceled right now. Um, there is a lack of space for delayed judgment that um, their particular argument, their particular voice needs to remain in the democratic public square because judgment is not ours. Ultimately, um, judgment belongs to God. And so when you don't have that, when you don't have a belief in, in sort of an eschatology or a, a judgment that will be coming later, um, there is an urge, there's a desire um, for judgment to be immediate and for the axe to fall right now. And so I think, Shadi, you know, you and I have come to really value eschatology within our faiths as something that's a politically important um, thing to be wrestling with, of uh, this, this humility um, and this sen sense of eschatological patience that um, judgment, uh, these things will not be resolved today and they will not be resolved tomorrow. And so, you know, as you said, you can chill <laughs> just a little yeah. bit. And I think, um, and that comes back to that, the, the comment that you had on, on MSNBC today about, you know, this is not the most important election of our lives. We've, we've got the midterms here in a week. And, uh, this is a common refrain now in American political life every single election is the most important one because it has this apocalyptic weight to it that with this election, the end of the world might come. 
Yeah, and, it, and if you think about it, it's like a really nonsensical comment uh, thing to say about an election, because if every election is the most important election of your lifetime, then clearly that they can't you were all be the most before. important. <laughs> like there seems to be like some kind of like fundamental miscalculation there. Um, but um, you know, just just to kind of, I want to make sure that we we enter into. I think an area of difference, and I'd, I'd just be curious because we're laying out some of our theological and political starting points. One thing that was surprising the first time we had a back and forth about it is I always assumed growing up as an American Muslim that Christians, Jews, and Muslims we all believe in the same God, and many listeners will will you know recognize that kind of language. It's a very common one, especially in more liberal public spaces in America, and that is the one thing that the Abrahamic faiths share. And that is still basically my position. I one thing I want to do in a later episode is really wrestle with this in more detail and dive into the theology. But I just want to put it out there that that made me uncomfortable when you said that i'm like whoa okay Matt so what i said was what, what what exactly did i say shaddy <laughs> you said we don't believe in the same god yeah yeah and I, that was look, at the that, university of minnesota right i think yeah um yeah i said well i i think you know if i could edit that a little bit i think okay. i think what i would say is um <clears throat> i think what i would say is I don't think conversations about whether or not we believe in the same God are at all helpful. Um, fundamentally, because I think what's behind those kinds of conversations is a desire to build peace and commonality and connection between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And I fundamentally don't think you need to convince anyone. Uh, I, I don't think that's the path to love and friendship and peace between Muslims and Christians and Jews. For me, you can simply say Muslims and Jews are loved by God and, um, and I'm commanded to love them. Uh, I don't need to believe that we uh, worship or, or believe in the same God. And furthermore, I think I would say that usually when I hear people talk about you know, we all believe in the same God. I view that statement to be fundamentally disrespectful to the real differences between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, um, because I think that they're rushing to uh, a false unity um, for the sake of peace, for, for a, a difference that is making them uncomfortable. And it is okay if our images, our particular images of God are different. I don't, I don't view that as a problem. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think that surprised a number of people in the group because they were coming to this event where Muslims and Christians are going to be talking, and their assumption is, oh, um, this will be this session in which Muslims and Christians hold hands and sing and pray together. Um, but no, there's, I want to say that there, there are deep differences, and the naming of who God is, first and foremost, um, in both Christianity and Islam, there is this understanding that God is fundamentally beyond our comprehension, that, that God is beyond our control. Um, 
and uh, that we cannot fully name and know God. God. God is beyond our grasp. And so when you make a statement that we believe in the same God, um, that, in my mind, is an attempt to control God, to control Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And I find it um, disrespectful to treat God like a basketball, that we both believe in the same basketball. God is, God is not analogous to that. And so um, I just view it as a question that, that Christians shouldn't answer. Um, yeah. Do we believe in the same God? Because it, 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 uh, yeah, it provokes this sort of sense that I know exactly who my God is, and you know exactly who your God is, and we can control him. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does. Let me ask you this, and I'm actually not sure what you'll say to it. So, it, you know, as a Muslim, as a Muslim and as a member of a minority community here in the U.S., I guess there's only still around one percent of us in the U.S. I think part of why we like the idea of sharing a God with the other two monotheistic faiths is because it allows us to be part of the broader American story. So, you know, we're the most, quote-unquote, foreign of the three faiths and the most recent in terms of immigration. So we're coming in, and we are seen as foreign. We do look more different, I suppose. Um, and so that that pushes us to search for commonalities so that we can tell we can tell a story about where we fit in. And, you know, sometimes we feel left out when people talk about a Judeo-Christian heritage, tradition, or nation. You know, I think sometimes we as Muslims, we want to we wanna just be, you know, added into that. Because otherwise, yeah. and I think oftentimes <clears throat> the idea of Judeo-Christian is weaponized against Muslims. Yep. That um, And so it is noticeable when we're not included in that... Um, in that kind of religious troika, if you will. So I'm curious, like, what would you say to that if a Muslim is concerned that this sort of doubling down on the idea of Christian difference in relation to the conception of God, like, where does that leave Muslims? Is that going to be good for yeah. them? Well, I, I think what I would say is um, I understand the desire to fit in, um, but I think that um, America should accept you as American citizens, regardless of your theology. So if you were atheists, you should be included and valued and protected um, within America. And so, yeah, the Judeo-Christian America is a way of excluding Muslims, but it's also a way of excluding atheists. Um, and so I I guess what I, what I react to is um, I think it, it makes me disappointed that Muslims um, feel the need to explain how similar they are to Christians in a desire to fit in. It seems to me that, um, you know, this is related to my the book review that I wrote of Ibu Patel's book on America, in which he really did, in many ways, try to, you know, describe how um, Islam is, you know, favors a very similar American civil religion to Christianity and Judaism. And we all are sort of Abrahamic faiths, you know, contributing to the, the American project. And I, I really do sympathize with those things, but I also want to say that, um, 
your your pathway to being accepted as an American should not have to run through Christianity or your proximity to Christianity. Um, you, Christianity shouldn't be the bridge by which yeah. you become an American. You should just get to become an American. So I would rather we have an American society that just accepts Muslims for being strange. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what I mean? And I like that you said you said this word strange because it's not a word that I tend to use a lot, this idea that Muslims should be strange or Christians should embrace their strangeness in the current secular culture. And, and you know, it's interesting that in some ways Christians feel like a minority in America now, and as, as do Muslims, but in very different ways. Where Christians feel, and by Christians here, I mean those who are outward, explicitly Christian and um, and evangelical in particular, um, feel like the culture is moving away from them on the national level, certainly, and that can create a sense of feeling under attack that um, these religious expressions are not going to be acceptable in the public sphere on things like. Um, being against abortion or being against gay marriage, um, and that they have to basically morph themselves and dilute their Christianity if they want to be embraced in mainstream institutions. And I would say for, for many Christian conservatives, it's worse than it is for Muslims because, you know, we as Muslims have a benefit in America that you know, we've been more accepted by the Democratic Party because we're part of the patchwork of colorful minorities and so forth. And um, there was a time, too, not too not too long ago, in the first year of the Trump administration, when displaying displaying the fact that you liked Muslims and doing it ostentatiously was actually a way to signal your anti-Trump credentials. Uh, especially during the Muslim ban and the protests around that in 2017. So we were able in some sense to maintain our, we could be religiously Muslim and openly so, but still be incorporated into the progressive mainstream because we were people of color. Now, I think that's actually crumbling now for reasons that we can maybe save for another time that, um, there is a divide among American Muslims increasingly on the local level, on things like public education, on things like LGBTQ rights and issues around um, uh, trans rights and, and so forth, that the things that have split Christianity between mainline Protestants and evangelicals is now increasingly causing divides in the American Muslim community. So I think this will all change, but it's just interesting that you know, we do share, you know, we do share something, this idea of being fear, fearful about being strange, but also wanting to be strange, because part of who we are is strange. But could you maybe just say a little bit more about how you think about the idea of strangeness theologically in the Christian tradition? Yeah. What does it mean to be strange? And, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, in and the Gospels talks about um, Christians, followers of Jesus are called to be in the world, um, but not of the world. And um, through, throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament as well, there's the sense of ancient Israel is supposed to 
stand out among the nations as as holy and and different and so there's this sort of constant reflection throughout scripture and also throughout christian history of the ways in which um jesus calls us to be strange in the world um that we are a, a stumbling block um and in a secular society that that shows up in a variety of ways of how we think about gender and sexuality, how we think about politics, um, how we think about money and a variety of other things. And, and in my studies uh, of Islam, you know, we see that, that jumping out in terms of um, how Muslim women will dress, uh, how we think about, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about your, your practice of fasting yeah. um, in a consumeristic society. Um, and how, as you go through Ramadan, you become more aware of how you don't fit in, um, in a culture of eating and consumption. And so being a person of faith, um, in a secular society, um, if you are actually practicing your faith from time to time, you feel strange. And, uh, when we feel strange as people of faith, uh, sometimes we are tempted, um, to think that, uh, we should try to fit in. Um, and that um, if we try to fit in, our lives will go better um, and our problems will be solved. Um, but really what I want to explore is actually that um, our lives of faith and indeed our, our democracy is, is better served when we show up as strange people of faith. Um, and so that's, that's really what I'm getting after there. Um, is is this emphasis on seeking to be faithful and actually believing that in and through being faithful, um, you are contributing to the lives of your neighbor and even into um, the health of this democracy, which in my view, and we can talk about this as well, um, I view American democracy as in real trouble. And um, we really do struggle uh, with navigating these, these deep differences and our democratic institutions are, um, are, are in real trouble. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think part of your argument about strangeness and um, you had a really good piece several years ago that I think is an unusual piece. I don't know if anything quite like it has been written where you as an American evangelical, evangelical and we could unpack maybe, I don't know how you, well, yeah, you're, I mean, you're sort of, yeah. I can you can call, call me an American evangelical. <laughs> and this piece you're talking about, we should mention, is published in Comment Magazine. Yes. Um, the host of this podcast. What are the chances of that? <laughs> and you, I think the title was something like The Headscarf. The Muslim Headscarf is a Gift to Western Democracy. And you were you were making a really cool point that I hadn't thought about before, which is if you are an ordinary American Christian going about your life, or if you're in France where there are less Christians, but still, it would be, you see someone wearing the headscarf, and it forces you to contend with strangeness, because it's visible, it's public, and it's something that you can't avoid. Um, so you see it, and that forces you to think about what, how you want to react to this manifestation of something that might seem otherwise foreign or potentially even threatening. Um, and that, that is a test 
for citizens. So it's actually good to experience strangeness. Um, it's good to actually see visible symbols of religiosity. We shouldn't constrain that or ban it or restrict it because then we're removing opportunities for learning how to be okay and to sit with that discomfort, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, you know, I, you know, I studied Muslim immigration in Europe, and one of the interesting things um, about Europeans when they, when they see a hijab or a headscarf uh, walking down the street, they're often quoted as saying, um, her headscarf made me feel very uncomfortable, or her headscarf was aggressive to me. That was an interesting quote. Her headscarf was aggressive to me. Um, and so it's, it's in witnessing the headscarf that we have to reflect on how am I going to respond to difference, but also we have to reflect on our own story, that if we were born in another place to another family, we too could have been Muslim or Christian or atheist, that our own stories are contingent on so many parts of our lives that we don't control. And so, yeah, in encountering that difference, of course, we can accept the fight or flight mentality, but there is a third option. And that third option is actually recognizing um, that our lives are, are fragile and contingent and they could have gone a million different ways. And so we hold things just a little bit more lightly um, that we are, we recognize that, that, that we're porous and that we're not in complete control of our lives and where we end up. And so this, my Muslim neighbor who wears her headscarf to the grocery store, um, she has no idea what she's, what she's done <laughs> in that moment, but she has caused me to reflect, you know, while I'm picking out my breakfast cereal, <laughs> she has, she has caused me to reflect on, okay. She's a part of my town. I'm a part of her town. How are we going to live together? Um, and I can reflect on that. And, and sh if she decided to try to dress like all the other American women, um, I would not have had that, that opportunity to reflect on that for that moment. And so when Buddhists and atheists and Marxists come into the public square and they are their full selves, uh, they are giving us a gift of here's this opportunity to really wrestle with deep difference. You had me until and, Marxist, but I take nah, your point. <laughs> you don't want Marxist to be. <laughs> but, but, you know, <clears throat> this, this desire to fit in uh, robs the public square of these real meaningful differences and this desire to force everyone under the, this sort of banner of the same God. Like we're, we all believe in God or we're all Americans or whatever it is. Um, ultimately you're, you're rushing past the hard work that has to happen with deep religious and political difference. And it's so much better if you are just forthright about this, this, you know, your, your own strange vision of the good life. And then we can talk about it. In fact, we can debate about it. Um, but American democracy is better when we encourage people to, to have it out. Have it out, yeah. You said something really interesting about contingency, which is sort of like a preoccupation of mine, but, you know, and this is something that, that many Muslims and Christians will take issue with, but um, 
if you know if I was born and raised and and by a by a Christian family in a Christian context, I would probably be Christian. Like the fact that I'm Muslim is maybe not an enti- not entirely an accident of history, but it is somewhat accidental. And I think sometimes people think, well, oh, actually, I would have converted to Islam if I wasn't born uh, Muslim. That's like absurd because we know we know historically and empirically the vast majority of people who are born in a religion stay in that religion. Um, and I think just being more aware of that. So if someone is an evangelical in Alabama who loves Donald Trump, that just, you know, it could have been otherwise. There, there's nothing foreordained about that particular reality. Um, and, you know, I'm, I often say that, um, I consider myself a liberal, and here I just, I'm not talking about liberal left. Uh, here I'm talking about being part of the broader liberal tradition. I wouldn't be a class, you know, I wouldn't be any, probably something resembling a classical liberal if I was born and raised in Pakistan or or Egypt. So the fact that I did have my formative political and ideological experiences in America a country that is founded on a liberal tradition that actually goes a long way and what like once we can think about our own lives and to see how um it is contingent that i think opens up a lot of possibilities of course um yeah. so yeah you you could have theoretically been muslim matt uh-huh. right yes no so i think that i think that you know if we wrestle with <clears throat> The fact that for Muslims and Christians, uh, we believe that we are vulnerable to the will of God, that that God might have placed us somewhere else, that our stories could have been something different. So I think that for both Muslims and Christians, we we understand that we're vulnerable to God's will um, and that our lives could have been different. And that is fundamentally at odds with a modern enlightenment view of the self, which is I am the captain of my fate, right? I am in control of my story and my identity. And um, I define myself and I actualize myself. But in both Islam and Christianity, there is this recognition that (laughs) I am below, I am beneath. um, I am, I am vulnerable to the will of God. And so Hopefully, that would cultivate, hopefully, emphasis on hopefully, hopefully, that would cultivate a level of humility about um, where my story has brought me up to this moment, um, because I'm not in complete control of my my story. God is. Um, so my identity is not something that I've constructed from scratch by myself. Yeah, and I guess the through line in a lot of this is you know, being in love with the idea of like human, like humans are capable of everything. We create our own identities. We construct our own lives. We have perpetual agency. It's also, I think, a, a difficult way to live. And, and you know, a little bit of a different topic, but when we're looking at mental illness or epidemic of loneliness, the fact that many Americans are unhappy with the current state of affairs you know, part of that is a result of 
of an endless sense of possibility and choice, which becomes overwhelming. Because if if there isn't a religious anchor, if there isn't anything above us, a pivot, if you will, then then anything is possible, but then it creates a kind of meaninglessness because if everything is possible, those possibilities are devalued. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, if, if no one's in control, <laughs> then there can also be a, a sense of deep fear, um, right? That it's up to me to create my identity. It's up to me to protect my identity um, and to protect my value and my story. And so then suddenly you're motivated by by a sense of political and identity fear, and you look to politicians who will secure your identity and your way of life uh, with a level of political passion and energy that is not at all helpful to democratic life. Um, and when you have a sense of security that you belong to God, um, you no longer... <laughs> You hopefully, once again, hopefully will no longer look to the state to guarantee your ultimate value, security, and identity. Um, when you have this sort of, when your identity is secured in God. Um, yeah, and that, that reminds me of one other conversation you, you and I have had about the headscarf. It's coming off twice now. Um, in, um, so in France, there was a, a court case about this this woman who wanted to um, wear her hijab at the school and in the courtrooms and things like this. And um, because of French laicite, uh, secularism, she was being told to take off her headscarf. And in the courtroom, she was asked to defend why she wanted to wear the headscarf. And they were expecting her to use modern language to defend herself. So she was expected to say that the headscarf is her personal expression of her personal beliefs. And so she is just expressing her personal identity through a headscarf. But of course, you don't need to be a scholar of Islam to know that that's a complete lie. The, the reason she was wearing this was out of submission to Allah. That was why she was wearing the headscarf. It was out of deep piety and submission to, to her God. And yet in this modern secular space, she was be, being expected to leave her religious reasons and her religious language at the door, and she had to accept and assimilate into a modern individualism and say, I'm expressing myself. And this is, at I think, at the heart of the liberal idea, if we look at political liberalism as expressed by John Rawls, who the great, uh, great uh, philosopher, probably one of the greatest of the 20th century, who I think, you know, is extremely influential in ways that people probably aren't even aware. He, you know, a lot of a, a lot of his insights, I think, imbue the way we look at modern secular liberalism. And, you know, it's interesting that what that if someone does make the argument that they're wearing the headscarf because they're expressing their individual right and they're using this this kind of this particular kind of justificatory um, <laughs> um, justifying language, it's very similar to what John Rawls said in his work that 
you can have your comprehensive doctrine, i.e. if you have a religion that offers a way of life, an alternative worldview, oh, you can have that, dear religious person. However, when you're making arguments in the public sphere, you have to, you have to use arguments that are publicly digestible or accessible to people who don't share your comprehensive doctrine. So in some sense, do whatever you want privately, believe whatever you want privately in your own mind. But if you have to articulate that belief to people who don't share your starting premises as a Muslim or a Christian or whatever, then speak in secular language that anyone can understand. And, you know, in some ways, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. Use the language that is most accessible and quote-unquote reasonable in whatever social context you happen to be in. But even if people don't realize it, they're being pressured into suppressing a part of who they are um, and trying to become something that maybe something that they're not fully or don't feel comfortable being. But it just... You know, a lot of these things are so are so much, you know, again, part of the air that part of the air that we breathe. And we don't even realize that we're arguing in a particular way or believing in a particular way. Um, so we, we you know, as we wrap up here, there is, um, you know, this podcast has the very, I think, cool name of Zealots at the Gate. And we do, you know, we want to make sure that we have a constant resource of zealotry. And one thing that I had on my list of things I want to talk to you about today, Matt, was I wanted to just attack interfaith dialogue. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know if I'm like really up to it. But you know, that's maybe a preview of things to come. But so we why have. Don't you I start think... us off. Start us off. Why does why does interfaith dialogue bug you, Shaddy? T- t- talk us through it. Like, w- why do the hairs on your neck go go up when you hear the the words interfaith dialogue? Because I imagine a lot of people who tuned into this podcast, you know, who were like, "Here's a Muslim and a Christian talking." They would they would put it under the label. Oh, of good. Okay. Dialogue. Well, I'm really good that we're ending this way because I don't want a single person listening right now to think that we're okay with this interfaith dialogue stuff. Well, I think I think part of maybe it actually brings us back to where we started. I think interfaith dialogue it's self-selecting. So the people who go to interfaith dialogue conferences, they tend to be more progressive or liberal in their religious outlook because those are the people who get invited to those things. Like think about it. Um you're not going to have a Trump-supporting evangelical invited to your classic interfaith dialogue organized by some university in, like, I don't know, in, in Boston or D.C. So, um, or an ultra- That would cons- be pretty cool to see a MAGA hat talking to an Islamist from oh, yeah. uh, you know, okay. I- ISIS or whatever. <laughs> well, maybe not, maybe not ISIS. They get, you know, but, um, but, <laughs> but, I mean, at some point, I think- we wanna we wanna mess around with that, and you know it'd be great to have. Uh, and we do have some ideas about this. It would be good to have a Trump supporting um, Christian voice, and to actually you know model what that might look like. What is it? You know, what is that kind of dialogue? That's not interfaith. That's like that's like beyond interfaith. That's like in, interpolitical interfaith. But it's not even inter. Even that prefix suggests a coming together. 
and that's the presumption that drives a lot of these um, interactions. But I'm really, I'm always just curious about what does it look like when you bring the most controversial or provocative, and it's not provocation for provocation's sake. I mean, sometimes I'm attacked for being, as I was on MSNBC by by my friend Mehdi Hassan. You know, he likes to, you know, he said that I'm a contrarian and that I might be a contrarian for contrarian's sake. Or the other, the other explanation is that I don't agree with him. So I am contrary to his opinion. And I think, you know, but it is, provocation is important because provocation is something everyone has to learn to contend with. And it's not enough to dismiss it and say, you're being contrarian or you're wrong or you're beyond the pale or you're a bad person or you're deplorable. So I want to talk to deplorables. I want to know what they think. Um, but anyway, that is just um, that's just how I feel about it. Um, and I'm sure you talk, right. probably talk to deplorables more often, Matt, con- considering that you are from a rural event. I, you know, it's always interesting. I always struggle to say the word rural. It, like... <laughs> And I don't know if you remember this. That's because you're so urban. Exactly. I didn't even learn how to say r- rural properly, but it reminds yeah, me. Yeah, no, of I'm this. I'm a conservative evangelical from a rural place. So yes, yeah, those are my people. Those are my kin. We'll kin. have Thanksgiving dinner together. Kin. That's an int- <laughs> yes. Um, it reminds me of the Thirty Rock episode where um, one of the main characters is trying to become an actress, and she gets this um, this role. In, in a in a movie that's <laughs> okay, she gets this she the gets rural this, juror. Yeah, you know about this. Yeah, so yes. it's just like hilarious that throughout the whole episode, she's just like sharing this great news with everyone, and she's like, "Oh my god!" And they're like, "Oh, what's the movie? Tell us, we can't wait." And she's like, "Yeah, it's called <laughs> it's called rural it's called juror. rural juror." And it's and no one wait rural like no one actually knows what she's saying, and she anyway. But um, well, you know what the sequel was to that. What? Urban fervor. <laughs> okay, I guess you just made that up right now. <laughs> Unless you had that story. I did not. No, man, that's wow. 30 Rock. That's 30 Rock. So oh, okay. in closing, let, yeah. let's bring this podcast home here. This is our first episode. In closing, I want to just just briefly, could you give us a preview? Because you and I are working on a book um, this next year, um, sponsored by the grant from Templeton Religion Trust. And we're supposed to write a book together, even though we disagree about all this stuff. <laughs> lots of stuff. So and I would say even us- more so on theology. So like once, you know, and people I think will see this, like when we get into some big theological debates, you know, uh, the gaps can be large. Uh, salvation, <clears throat> proselytization, divine command theory, the nature of God's sovereignty. Um, yeah, so on and so forth. Yeah, There's a lot I mean, there. Sh- friends, Shaddy is wrong about a wide variety of things, and we'll explore that. But but let's talk just a little bit about this book and, um, you know, kind of because we're going to be working through this as we go. Um, In your own words, how would you describe this particular book book project and what we're trying to get after here? Good question. Um, Well, part of it is we want to make religion great again. (laughs) We want to bring religion back into the public conversation in a way that opens people's minds and hearts. And we also, we also want to, because it's co-authored, and we're going to, so we'll, we'll be co-writing some of the sections, but 
other sections we will be writing in our individual voice because we're not going to agree on the divinity of Christ. So it'd be hard to like write about that together. So um, we do want, through our own interaction, to model what this looks like. How do you actually go back and forth um, in the context of writing and writing together? And we want to show we want to show different ways of doing that better and more effectively and with understanding and grace and comprehension and generosity of spirit. Yeah, and I think I think beyond that, um, I think you know as we've talked about multiple times in this first episode, deep difference um, can drive us to um, run away, to try to dominate, to try to destroy, uh, or to demonize. And we want to look to the past, to the wisdom um, found within our faiths, uh, to find that humility, that mercy, that grace. Um, And we have a number of what I think to be uh, very interesting stories from the history of Islam and the history of of Christianity uh, in which our forefathers and mothers wrestled with these questions, and they have some interesting lessons for our modern day, uh, life. And in so many ways, the, the, the struggles of our democracy today and the ways in which we, we demonize and we huddle into our own political tribes. Um, these are not new questions. These are in fact, very old questions and, um, humanity has been wrestling with them for centuries, millennia. And so we believe there's something to learn from our history and from our texts. Um, some kind of political wisdom that political theology can actually help us as we, as we think about um, these deeper chasms that we're experiencing. Well said, Matt. Well said. Well, on that note, I want to say to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for listening to Zealots at the Gate. We hope you like what you heard. If you did, check out the broader universe of which this podcast is a part at comment.org and there you'll find not only Matt's wonderful essay on the headscarf as a gift to western democracy but other illuminating essays on politics, culture and faith and I'm happy to say that I've written a few times for Comment Magazine as well so uh, it's great also Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please do consider leaving us a review or a rating and say how awesome we are or even, you know, offer up, uh, you know, a nice criticism. We're definitely open yeah, but to that give too. Us, give us a really high rating. High ratings are key. High ratings and then leave us a nasty review. Exactly. So I exactly. want a five-star review with a nasty rating. Oh, that's like, <laughs> that's the sweet spot right there. So you can connect with us, with Matt and I over Twitter. Uh, my, uh, my handle is first name, last name, Shadi Hamid. Matt, what, remind me how you spell, it's Matthew Kamek. It's your full name or just Matt? Yeah, it's Matthew Kamek is the handle. And there you go. Kamek it's is easy. a very easy name to spell. So anyone yeah, He's Dutch. It. He's, he's a Dutch person. And uh, you can also write to us and to Comment Magazine at comment at cardis.ca. And for those of you who are wondering what CA is, that's Kenda. So um, 
So our, our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Shadi Hamid, and the person across from my screen right now is Matthew Kamink, and we will see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.